We'll be in Isaiah 41 today, and of course, the sermon notes in your bulletin, I know, will be a help to you. I find it very providential that we are where we are today in the text, and you will quickly figure out why. Um, But Isaiah 41, I want to begin um, heading us toward the text with a statement of what I would call the obvious, and that is, uh, these are unsettling days. Uh, Have you noticed uh, just in a, in a sudden moment, we have gone from the news flooded with issues of illness and disease to war and displacement of people and refugees and what in the world is happening. And um, some of us who were raised with bomb shelters, I remember bomb shelter drills. The grade school I went to had a bomb shelter and we did drills. We knew where to get there, uh, how to get down there and why. Um, as in my elementary years, I remember hearing about the possibility of nuclear war And uh, we haven't talked about that much in a while, for which I'm grateful, but it's in the news again, isn't it? Possibilities, people wondering. Um, We are hearing uh, all kinds of things from our missionaries abroad, and I'll I'll leave some of the details of that alone until the right time to pass on information about that. God is caring for our folks. We're grateful for that. But um, some of my contacts in European Leadership Forum, I've reached out to in Romania and Czech Republic to say, how are you? Uh, what's going on? How can we pray for you? European Leadership Forum itself sending out details, listing churches, people in Ukraine, some of the folks Kathy and I met in 2018 when we were over in Poland, uh, a number of folks from Ukraine right there, uh, wonderful followers of Jesus. And, and now we wonder, where are they? Um, the Mormances, our missionaries in Slovenia, uh, work with Josiah Venture mission organization. Their mission organization has sent out lists of names and churches and so on, all affected in the country of Ukraine. Some people having gotten out or working on it, others who have said, this is our place. And come what may, we're here. So much to pray about. Much to pray about. And uh, wow, we'll communicate when we can on, on other things, ways to help. There are a number of options there. Some people wanting to jump in and do things. There are avenues through European Leadership Forum, through Josiah Venture, even through IFCA uh, to, to be of assistance. My, my friend I got a hold of, uh, Pastor Lika in uh, Czech, he said, our, our organization is here. Um, we've got people coming in in droves, and we are doing everything we can to house and feed. And if anybody wants to help, you can send money through this Baptist organization, and it's going to go to burgers and lunch and whatever it is, uh, sleeping bags for people coming. So the opportunities are there, and I'm grateful. So what do you do with this? And does God speak about the, this kind of thing in the world? And, in fact, he does. And I, would, I really would like to just put you on notice. I need you to hear everything that is said this morning, because if you hear part of this, you could easily walk out of here with a skewed view of God, and I wouldn't want that. Because, again, very providential that we are where we are today in Isaiah 41. You'll, you'll quickly see why. So I want to pray that God would help us to hear well and to process and uh, think well about our view of God today. So if you join me in that, that would be wonderful. Father, we come to your word at this moment and ask for your help, that we would hear well what the text says to us, your living, inerrant, inspired word of God. And Father, meet us here by the work of the Spirit of God. You know what we need to hear today, each one of us, as we, as we look at the world and try to make sense of things and hear, again, as always, the word of God speaks So help us today, in Jesus' name, amen. 
Uh, you know, I'm sure, uh, that we are in a study through the book of Isaiah. We have been doing that since last fall and uh, have a few more months to go, moving at times quickly and at times a little more slowly. Uh, perhaps you noticed the change in artwork from uh, the first part to last week. We shifted by going into chapter 40. The fire we had on the front of the bulletin and on, in the, the sermon art, reminiscent of, the, of the, the fire of God in Isaiah 6, in particular, the glory of God. This, I'm trying to, I forget our discussion of this because we talked about this in staff meeting. Is this, are these branches with snow? Or is it major pussy willow time and it's spring? (laughs) Depending on which way I've looked at, but I think you're right on branches with snow, right? So winter, yes, winter, but winter melds into spring, indeed, hope. Hope. I think that's what we were after. I got to ask Tyler, but we haven't had a chance. Why did we do? Never mind. I get it. It's cool. It's a cool picture. But I think it's supposed to grab a hold of the idea of hope and a God who restores. And winter is not forever, like in the Chronicles of Narnia, under, uh, well, you remember, under the spell, and so on until Aslan came. Uh, it's always winter and never Christmas. Well, no, no. In fact, hope springs anew. And so all of this, I think, should speak to us. We're going to see today, as you look at Isaiah 41, right in the middle, twice God says the words, fear not. This is in verse 10 and verse 13, fear not, fear not. And then he tells why. That's in the middle of the text. Uh, But along the way, that, that middle part is framed by, of course, an introduction and a conclusion that I think work well together. This, this text really is a, a wonderful preaching unit. And it's going to underscore one big thing. On what basis does the God of history say, fear not? On what basis? And I would suggest that my first heading is the answer to that. Specifically, that God is the sovereign and active ruler of history. God is the sovereign and active ruler of history. And I want to press on that today. I think it's the message of the text. And at the same time, hear the words, fear not, fear not, and he'll tell you why. So I'm going to spend, I'm confident, a little more of our time on verses 1 through 7, because if we get that right, I think the rest falls quickly into place. I want to read these uh, three sections, uh, one at a time, of course, 1 through 7 first, and then say a few things about it and then we'll read the next section, and so on. But God's word then is a specific setting is being described here, and I'll give you a heads up to begin with. The setting appears to be a formal hearing. I have this under first bullet point. Kind of like a drawing together for judgment, whether you think of a formal courtroom with the judge and, and so on, probably that would be our view, but in earlier times, perhaps at the city gates, but a calling together for a serious counsel. That's what's going on here, so hear it as I read. So, Isaiah 40, verse 1, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw, or together draw near for judgment. Here's the question. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? Here's the answer. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. 
Okay? Now, verses 5 through 7, the response of the nations to this question and the response. What else do you have? So we read, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. Well, yes, the ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. Four individuals mentioned here. There's two. He who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. They're making... They're making an idol here, a false god, an image of a false god. That's what they're doing. That's made evident more later in the same text, same chapter. So they're making a, a false item to worship here, a god to represent one who is not God. So what's happening in these seven verses? Well, a calling, certainly, to come together for judgment. And it's as though the bailiff or someone is asking the question framed in verse two, who did this? Now, You're going to find in Isaiah 44 and 45 that the who is given the name Cyrus. And I've given you that. Who sent Cyrus the Great, the conqueror from Persia? Who did it? Now, the fact that he's called by name, some find troubling. Some say, well, how would they know his name if he hadn't come yet? I mean, who knows the future anyway? I mean, come on. So people who, it really comes down to your view of God. Is God capable of giving predictive prophecy? There are some who would say, well, no, this had to be written later. Otherwise, how do you know his name's Bob or, in this case, Cyrus? Well, God calls it out. And I think that's very significant in this text. God who knows the future can say who it is. And he does. He does. The the testimony of Scripture, I don't know what your heart does with that, predictive prophecy. Can, Can a writer, under the inspiration of God, say, like Isaiah, the guy's gonna come in the future, his name is Cyrus? Well, the text says yes. So that's who we're dealing with. The question then is, who did this? And it's looking around the room. Excuse me, I'd like to know who's going to take responsibility. This guy, is, he's a conqueror. He's plowing nations under him, trampling kings underfoot, makes them like dust. Who did this to us? And God raises his hand. Got a problem with that? It brings question, though, doesn't it? God raises his hand and says, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Wow. Now, apart from that answer is what you have in verses 5 to 7. If God is not the one to whom you run for strength and courage in this moment and bow before his sovereign hand, if that is not what you do, verses 5 to 7 is what you're left with. That is creating something else to trust. That's what they're doing. Well, we don't want to worship the God of creation, the God of the Bible, the only God who is. We don't want to worship him. What else do we have when we're scared? And they're scared, verse 5. The coastlands are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. We are in so much trouble. What's going to happen? That's what you end up with, abject fear, absent a personal and powerful God, you see. If you do not know today that God rules and reigns over the universe... You ought to be afraid, even more afraid than others. There's a lot to fear. My goodness sakes. Should I make a bomb shelter, honey? What's the backhoe doing in the yard? How many bullets does one need? Well, more. Well, make make something else to trust. Find something. Say to your friend, verse 6, send him a Hallmark card and say, be strong. That's what you got. Hang in there, buddy. Based on what? Well, these people get together and they sell false gods that can't be moved. They try to nail it to the wall. 
Okay, so there's, there's the initial um, pre- presentation in a courtroom. I want to suggest verses 1 through 7 are like the initial part of this judgment proceeding. Now, what happens, I think, between verses 7 and 8 is somebody calls for a recess, to use our modern terms. We're calling a recess. Why? Because God wants to talk to his people. He's got some things to say. Now, before we move that direction, there are some things I want to talk about. Before we step to words of comfort, I want, I want to press on this a little more, all right? So you notice here on your study notes, God unequivocally says, yes, I did that. I'm on the third bullet point. Now, at the very same moment, Cyrus, whenever he comes, if you were to ask him, whose idea was this for you to be a conqueror? If you'd asked him, he would have said, I did it. It's my idea. See? Sometimes people struggle with the idea of a sovereign God and human choice. And in this case, I mentioned theodicy, which is the cool uh, theological word for the problem of evil. If you haven't wrestled with that over a cup of coffee or whatever it is, you haven't thought very deeply. If God is sovereign and good, what's the deal? See? The problem of evil is an age-old struggle. Pastor Ben discovered it earlier in the book of Isaiah. It'll show up again. It's all over the Bible. Bible writers were not ignorant of that. Uh, We are not the first generation to say, hey, wait a minute. How does this all fit? We didn't make up that question. So when you wrestle with it and try to come to a conclusion, uh, don't you think you're the first person to have it? But let me say this. There are some things you must not let go of. And people try to solve the problem of evil a lot of different ways. One of the ways they do it is, you know, you have God is powerful and, and God is good. He must be good. The Bible says this. So sometimes they say, and you got this problem of evil. Sometimes people say, well, in order to fix this, I'm going to say God is, God is really, really strong, really powerful, ultimate, sovereign, and somehow he's less than good because evil exists. Good problem with that. The Bible affirms so strongly, we'll see some of this, that, that God is never less than good, ever. Operating always for his glory and for your good, ultimately. Maybe in ways you do not see today. The other way people solve it is by saying God is good and he is less than sovereign. See, we're going we're gonna to subsume some of the responsibility of God. Some would say, no, he's given that responsibility, like given it away. Wrong. So it's almost like saying God is good and he's doing the best he can. Can't you give God a break? He's trying really hard. Come on. And the Bible says, no, no, no. Sovereign God, always good. See, and there's evil in the world. So don't, don't try to toss away one of these to make you sleep better at night. Now, again, I want to press on this. So I have given you, I don't often do this. Often I go to a text and stay there. But there are five texts that out of dozens and dozens. I just want to read these and make a couple of comments today. All right? I, I just, I want you to think about this, please. You probably have been. That's good. So I'm going to go quickly through these. I'm not going to preach each one, but a couple of comments I think are due. So Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. This is in the Song of Moses. Some of it is first person from Moses. Some of it is first person from God, as is the case here. So Song of Moses, then Deuteronomy 32, 39, spoken first person from God. Hear this. He says, see now that I, 
Even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Amen. Is he good, though? Always. This would be a terrifying verse written from God, who is sovereign but not good. To know his mercy is always alive. Yes. Okay, then moving. First Samuel chapter 2. This is not just the song of Moses. First uh, Samuel 2 is this, the prayer or the song of Hannah, woman of faith, who has a similar view of God. So she, and I apologize for interrupting Hannah in her prayer, but I'm going to. There in the middle in verse 6, she says this, verses 6 and 7, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, or the place of the dead, and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Now, who does this? It's the hand of God, so Hannah believes and asserts for us. Now, in the midst then of these five, I pause at Psalm 5. And I want you to hear, again, I'm just using representative texts of dozens that we could could turn to on on all of these issues. But these are representative. Psalm 5, verse 4, a psalm of David. And he says, of God, again, a truth that's repeated elsewhere, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you or shall not dwell. Evil Evil may not dwell with you. You're not a God. Isn't this good to know in the midst of everything? God does not delight in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. He does not delight in those things. Huh. Wow. I'm glad to know that. I'm glad to know that he is sovereign and that he takes no delight in such things. Now, I move to Lamentations right after the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, of course, often called the weeping prophet because he is in the middle of it. That is, he is writing at a time when the nation of Israel, or nation of Israel, or Judah specifically, Jerusalem, the city, is being plowed under uh, by the Babylonians, and it is done, and places are on fire, and people have died. There is death in the street, and it's awful, reminiscent of what you'd see on the news right now if it were happening in front of us. And Jeremiah is walking there in the streets and his heart is broken over his people. And so he says then in Lamentations, which is a book of lament, which is a wonderful thing. When your heart is broken, it is right. It is right to lament. That is a prayer of grief uh, before God, affirming his, his awesomeness and his power and his might and my broken heart and bringing the two together. The Bible is full of examples of lament. Here is one. So I'm going to start at verses 31 and 32, and then read again 37, 38. So we read, Jeremiah says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So, so that's a good affirmation. This, this that hurts will not hurt forever. It will not hurt forever. Though he cause, cause, do you see this? Though he cause grief, he will have compassion. Wow, verse 37. Who has spoken? 
And it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Now, you have here on your study notes a couple of words that I'm pressing. And just, I don't do this often, but sometimes specific words I think are helpful to us uh, create that we'll see in a moment, in particular in Isaiah 45, um, bara is your Hebrew word. Some of you know those things. It is, it is a word that only in the Old Testament uses God as its subject. He is the only one who does that, to create. And similarly, calamity, bad, evil, the Hebrew word there is ra, R-A. It usually is used of evil, but it has a range in the word, and sometimes it can mean calamity or bad, but three-fourths of the time it's evil. So ra, bara and ra, to create and then this other word. So I want to go back then from Lamentations with those words in mind to Isaiah 45 as we head back toward Isaiah 41. I just, I just, I don't want to say these are teasers because there's nothing to tease you about here particularly, but this is just a taste of significant study that can be had if you pursue uh, these topics and those words. But Isaiah 45, which starts with God speaking again to Cyrus, calls him by name. Man, thus says the Lord to his anointed, he's even called. He's doing the bidding of God to Cyrus. You come down to verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, or to its setting, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Now watch this. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being. The word here is shalom. I make shalom. I create shalom. I make this. I make well-being, and I create, wow, calamity. Raw. Calamity, or bad, or evil. Three-quarters of the time. Not always does it mean evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. So what do you do in a troubled world when things really go south? Do you, do, you, do you blame? Do you blame God? See, the text has God quickly raising his hand to take responsibility. And quickly, just as quickly, calling you to trust him because he is good. See, if you only go with the first part, it's terrifying. But with the, the second half, the goodness of God never less than good, never unwise, never spinning out of control. So the power of God, you, you can't avoid it in the text. God is the sovereign and active ruler of history. I know, questions begin to compound. So calamity, or good, or bad, or evil, what do you mean? You create, help me out, cause, what do you mean? Well, I'm going to leave it for a moment. Now, at this moment... In the text, Isaiah 41, it's as though a recess is called, okay? There's, it's like a recess. So God now, with that on the table, he's taken responsibility, and, and others are running to false gods to find comfort and finding none. And then you come to verse 8, and here God then deals with his people. So, so don't miss what he's going to do. This is, a, this is God, I put it under this heading, God, Redeemer, and Helper, again, comforts his people, which is what we saw in chapter 40. And again, takes a break from the courtroom for a recess. 
And I read then 8 through 20, and I will comment along the way. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you hear this? My righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. In other words, that which troubles you here in this day so described with Cyrus, there's going to come a day that's going to be very different than today. Those people attacking you now, one day you will not look around for them and you won't find them. You'll seek those, verse 12, who contend with you, you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Sometimes I fear we we grab verses like 10 and 13 and we memorize them and we forget about the rest of the chapter. They're set in a context. It's good good for you to memorize 10 and 13. Yes, do that. But please know what the rest of the chapter is about because they are key verses in the midst of a theological wrestling with God that at times your heart does too. See, these are key verses in it. So God continues, fear not, isn't this good? Memorize this one. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. Wow, that's flattering. What's the point? Why does he call him a worm? Is, it, is, is, he, is he describing them in some despicable way? Well, no. Uh, after a good rainstorm here in the Northwest, you see the worms that come out, they're stuck on the sidewalk. Do you ever feel bad for them? Anybody else ever rescue them? Don't raise your hands. We don't want to think you'll... I rescued two the other day. I did. I felt bad. They were still looking pretty healthy, and I knew they were. It was. He calls them a worm here. It's like that. Listen, you're that helpless, even though you don't know it. You're that helpless. You're that dependent on me, like a worm thrashing around, and you don't even see it. You think you're all powerful and smart, don't you? You've got it all figured out. Boy, I'm wise. I've got the problem of evil figured out. No, he says, fear not, you worm. Jacob, you men of Israel, I'm the one who helps you. I'm the one who picked you up, lest you think you're all smart. And that's right. He's the one. He's got it. He does. So it's a call not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. Fear not, you worm Jacob. Just own it. You know, right? You men of Israel, I'm the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Then he says, behold, I'll make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains. In other words, what you see today is not what you will always see. You now is in the victim place. You will not always see people running over you. What you see happening today is temporary. I'll make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You'll make the hills like chaff. You shall winter them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. Great, great phrase. Now, watch the first person uh, explanations in these next four verses. As God says, in this time of rescue, let's think about who's doing it. Okay, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, their tongue is parched from thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. 
I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. In other words, on the day that you see rescue, you will know that day God did it. You didn't do it. You didn't dig yourself out of that pit because you're just so amazingly smart. No, you worm. You, you, you are delivered. Any deliverance you see is from the hand of God. Don't miss it. Any deliverance you see is from his hand. So thank him for it. Now, a couple of things here that I put on the notes, a couple of little bullet points. Watch the use of the term servant. This is just an aside, I suppose, for bigger picture Bible study, because here it refers to Israel. Uh, sometimes it refers to uh, God's servant, and we're going to be looking at that Messiah, Savior, and we'll see that in the coming chapters. Cyrus is called God's servant, but it's a term you want to start getting familiar with as you move through this portion of Isaiah. Who's the servant spoken of in this text? Is it the nation? Is it, is it Cyrus? Is it Messiah? You should be asking that as we read it, but that's for later, but I wanted to call it out here. So on what basis does God say, fear not? That's kind of our center point. On what basis does God say, fear not? Uh, I've given you four, though if you study this paragraph, you can come up with twice that or more. Why can God say, fear not, in the midst of a mess? Well, he says, because I chose you and I keep you. I hang on to you. It's not that you're so strong and hold on to me. A song we sometimes sing, he will hold me fast. It isn't I will hold him fast. It's he will hold me. He hangs on to us. Verse 10, I am with you. I'm with you. The presence of God in the midst of this. God's people in a war-torn country today, where is God? What's the answer? With them with them in that basement, with them in that subway, with them in that bomb shelter. Where are you? Here. I am here with you. I've not abandoned you. Present in suffering. We are not necessarily in bomb shelters and such things today. What is your grief and what is your sorrow? What is your bomb shelter where you're hiding? What makes you duck? Okay, where is God in this? What is it? He's with you. He's with you. In your struggle, he's with you in your tears. Where is he? God, where are you? Here, here with you, here with you. So never lose sight of this. His presence, fear not. I am your helper. He says it three times. Verse 10, verse 13, verse 14. I am the one who helps you. I am your helper. I am. That's me. Interesting that the God of heaven would describe himself that way. I come alongside and I help you. Wow. I uphold you. Verse 14, I am your redeemer. I'm your redeemer. So you have the, as we often think about theological terms, we have the transcendent element. God is sovereign. And we have the imminent, the close element. He is near. He is our redeemer and he is with. Again, we've spoken about this often. Good theology has both of those wedded the power of God and his nearness, his greatness and his goodness. And so here, his sovereignty and his nearness to us in our time of difficulty. He is near, he redeems. Wow. 
verses 21 to 29, we return to the courtroom as we wrap, head toward wrapping this up. Verses 21 to 29, I want to read, but I, I, pay attention to the courtroom setting elements and, and what's taking place. God uses some, um, I would say, uh, maybe biting sarcasm, irony. It's kind of fun. So, so watch what's being said. So, verse 21, set forth your case, says the Lord. You see, court is back in session. Set forth your case, bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them. Who's bringing what? Idols. Bring all the idols into the room. So in this room, then, you're picturing a big, big room, all the false gods of the nations and God himself. So bring them all in, and go ahead, guys. Tell us what's going to happen. Anyone? Anyone? Tell us the former things what they are. How about a history lesson? Anybody? That we may consider them. Tell us something that we may know their outcomes or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you're God's. Do good or do harm. Do something. Raise your hand. Move closer. Speak. Move. Anything. Anybody? He says to a room full of false gods. Silence reigns. Isn't that great? Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, he says, to all the things that people trust other than himself. You might say, I don't bow before some stone image, whatever the case may be. Yes, but you may put your confidence somewhere else, and God would say, of that place, whatever it is you trust, that is nothing. Your work is less than nothing. Abomination is he who chooses you. Now, God says it again. I stirred up one from the north. Do you see him take responsibility for history? I did this. And he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we may know, and beforehand that we may say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. He says, behind door number one, door number two, and door to infinity of false gods, three and a half million gods in India, right? Or people would say, behind door number one, the living God. Who's behind door number two? No one. Door number three, no one. And all the way down. And in this room of of idols, so to speak, and God says, anybody here want to give a history lesson or tell us the future or or just anything? God alone raises his hand and says, do you remember what I can do? I can tell the end from the beginning. And I, for my own purposes, have, have, have deemed that this should happen. Any arguments? No, I'm the Holy One of Israel. And again, that would terrify us if it were not for the fact that God says at the same time, and I am good. I am good, merciful to all who call upon me, near you in a day of trouble. But the Bible never gives us a choice of diminishing his sovereignty or in the face of evil, diminishing his goodness. Those must be wed. He is good and he is God. And we bow before him and serve an awesome God, fully trustworthy, even when you and I do not understand which is, may I say, pretty often, isn't it? Now, gave you a few other things here uh, to think about and to fill in. A few things under the responding to God section. 
I want to read a little paragraph, short paragraph from Dr. Bruce Ware, theology professor at Southern Seminary, my theology professor years ago at Western Seminary. In thinking through these issues, and Dr. Ware has done that um, a lot, issues of, of, the, of sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people. By the way, I, I should say this. Um, you, you, many people try to solve theodicy, the problem of evil, by the term free will, which you, this is a big discussion, now, just, to, just to touch it today. Those are terms I don't use. Because many times people use the word free will and they end up thinking absolutely free. And may I say there is one absolutely free being in the universe and you are not him. See, there is only one. It is God. So I I don't use the term free will because I think it is too quickly misunderstood to mean something completely different from what the Bible says. So in, in our discussions, you will never hear me say that, I don't think. Human responsibility. Are we accountable to God? Absolutely. What did, what, did, what did Cyrus want to do when it was time to march? He wanted to march, and God was sovereign the whole time. Mystery, but true. Cyrus did what was most on his heart to do. He, was not, he did not feel constrained in that moment. He did what was most on his heart to do, and over it all, a sovereign God. That's the scripture, okay? So Dr. Ware then says this. Here's what you do as you wrestle with this. Trust, he says, trust the character of God in the midst of suffering. Trust the wisdom of God that he only designs what is best. Trust the love of God that grants you complete confidence that he is for you. Trust the power of God by which you know that nothing can thwart his good purposes from being accomplished in you, for you, and for his glory. So trust, trust here, trust today, all of us on this side of the world, trust in the midst of a a war-torn Europe, trust, God is sovereign, he is good, and we bring these together with great rejoicing, and we sing holy, holy, holy. Nowhere is the, the, the power of God and his goodness seen more clearly than in the cross of Christ. Because look at human history. God so ordained at the perfect time Christ would come, God in the flesh, and go to a cross to pay for your sin. What is true about God is most seen in the cross of Jesus, his mercy, his love, his dying in your place. So it is right that even today we close our service by remembering Christ in communion. I want to say this as well. I'm going to pray for us and then say just a word about how we do this. Um, But today, even now, Uh, nine hours or so off as darkness falls on Ukraine on a Sunday. There are likely congregations of men and women maybe gathered in dark places on this Lord's Day having remembered Christ. And us here in a a different place, much safer, we, we share with them in a sense in solidarity, saying we're remembering Jesus here knowing that others Smaller groups hiding in darkness, maybe don't have it all quite like us, maybe hearing things outside that would scare all of us to death, saying today we remember Jesus. I, I just think that's good to let our minds say we are one with them because we're part of the same body, body of Christ. 
So I'm going to pray, and we'll remember Christ and share in fellowship with them. Father, thank you for your word. This challenges us. This stretches us. It does, this text. I thank you that you are sovereign over all, and I thank you that you're good. I thank you that you allow us choice, somehow working that together into your sovereign plan, and you are Lord of all. Thank you for this. Thank you for how we struggle to understand the divine mind. If we didn't, oh, Lord, how small you would be or how big we would be. We don't get it. We are that worm, Jacob. So I thank you, Father, for Jesus, God in the flesh, the one who explains God to us, exegetes the Father to us, Jesus, full of grace and truth. Today, we remember his work on the cross in our place. We remember his shed blood, his broken body, and we do this with great joy. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. As always, if you know Christ is your Savior, we invite you to share with us in receiving the bread and the cup, so please come. In Revelation 5, there is a scene described, a scene of worship, awe, wonder. It's a scene right out of heaven. Won't go to all the details of it, but Christ is the main focus. This is the text where Christ as the lion and Christ as the lamb are both presented. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain. I I go here often because I remember that when we are in heaven and we're out of history and all of this is done, We will never lose sight of what Jesus did. Heaven itself is filled with praise to the the lamb who was slain. We will never lose sight of this. So then we'll know more fully as now we are fully known. But until that day, we take a little piece of cracker, whatever it is, wherever we are, and we remember the body of Christ. Let's remember Jesus, his broken body today. And likewise, as Paul instructed us in 1 Corinthians 11, after the bread, we remember with Jesus in that sharing of the Passover meal, after the supper, he took the cup, the cup of redemption. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Revelation, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Let's remember Christ. And would you stand with me as we head out with prayer, committing our week and all that comes to the Lord. Father, again, as always, we head out into a week that will bring we know not what. But I'm thankful that you do. This week ahead is not a mystery to you. But we walk out of here in confidence in you, trusting you, trusting you in this broken world to be God. Oh, Father, strengthen those who are hurting, struggling, lost today, those who are in the process of travel to safer places. Have your hand upon them for good. Give us wisdom as we pray. Help us in all things, in our words and our thoughts, to honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.